There's um, only one announcement. It's amazing. Actually, I'll add a couple. One announcement, that is that this Saturday morning there's going to be a ladies' uh, prayer meeting, ladies' prayer luncheon uh, at, um, I don't know what the time is, but there's a sign-up out back. And just a reminder that because nobody signed up for the children, the children's uh, time was canceled. Also, just a reminder that at this time of the year, it is not long before the Chafer Conference, and so people need to be thinking about how you can help out. We always have a tremendous number of people in the congregation who help out, who volunteer uh, during those three days, and we couldn't do it without the church putting uh, so much into it. And it's a um, it's going to be the 16th through the 18th of March. It's going to be a tremendous time. We've got a number of great topics that are going to be addressed in the in the uh, sessions. And the evening sessions and a couple of sessions are going to be related to uh, will be Steve Austin, who is a uh, has his Ph.D. in geology and he used to be with the Institute for Creation Research. And now he's retired. What retired means is that he's doing the same work, but he's doing it in different different ways. He teaches some uh, uh, extension classes for Cedarville University. He does uh, takes people on trips up to the Grand Canyon and to uh, Mount St. Helens and to Mount Kilimanjaro and to just about anywhere where he can dig in the rocks. And he really knows all of that material. Also, a uh, one of the, our professors at... Um, Schaefer Seminary in Albuquerque, Ray Mondragon, who's spoken before, has also a science background, and he's worked some with Sandia Labs in the past in uh, Albuquerque, and he's going to be speaking on some important issues related to um, the nation's development of nations, The um, what I always think is one of the most fascinating chapters. The chapters that people skip over, Genesis 10 and 11, because they're genealogies, but these are really... Uh, important for a lot of different reasons, and, and Ray will be addressing some of that. So it's going to be a really good conference. Uh, plan time, if you can, to be here during the day and also at night. And I'm already just about have the next year filled up, and that's going to be a really tremendous conference. So uh, we've got a lot to cover. There's just so much doctrine. There's so much theology you just can't run out. And it's it's exciting, and the more we think we are approaching a reaching a certain uh, goal or end game in terms of knowledge of the word, then the more we realize that that yes, we may reach another milestone, but there's billions and billions of miles to go, and the knowledge we'll get from the Lord it will never be uh, we'll never know everything the Lord knows because He's omniscient, and we never will be. Anyhow. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So before we open up the Word of God to study the truth of the Word of God this evening, let's bow our heads and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonderful privilege we have to know you, and we know you because of your grace, that you took the initiative from eternity past to plan a perfect salvation for us that would involve your sending your Son, the second person of the Trinity, to enter into human history and to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that that is exceptional news, great news, that we can have eternal life, and that though we live in this horrible pit that's been corrupted by sin, we know that one day it will be redeemed and that we will be with you and there will no longer be any sorrow or tears or pain or suffering because all of these things will have passed away. But in the meantime, we are to learn about you and to learn how you provide for us and how you sustain us, to learn of your integrity, and we pray that we will not lose sight of that that this is to be our primary mission, and we need not be distracted 
by the cares and the vicissitudes of life that we face every day. And we pray that we might keep our focus on you. We, in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10. And we are continuing in this second section with Saul. Now, this is one of those fun passages that I like to study because it's one of those passages that if you are reading through your Bible and you're following the Bible challenge, I think, uh, what you say, Dick, you ought to be almost through with, with Genesis? If you're following Ray Mondragon's Exodus 10. You're not quite here, but you're going to run into a few things here and there, even in Exodus, where it may cause your eyebrow to go up just a little bit, and you wonder, what in the world does that mean? Well, this is one of those passages, when you hit it, you really wonder, what in the world does that mean? Because it just seems to not fit with certain other things that you know about prophets and prophecy, and so it's important for you to be aware of that. So... Uh, we'll get into this. It's that episode with Saul among the prophets. And there's a similar situation in 1 Samuel chapter 19. So in the first seven chapters, we have Samuel. Uh, Samuel is the focal point. Then we see Saul from chapter 8 to 15, the rise of Saul. And we're just at the beginning of that in chapter 10. And then we see his decline in chapter 16 to 31, as we also see the rise of David at that same time. Now, these events that we're studying are all taking place down here around uh, Ramah. This is Samuel's hometown. Just south of there is Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. Uh, north of there is uh, Bethel, which is one of the, which later on will be a site. It's a major site in um, the Old Testament history. But it's all along the, this, this is a, almost like a ridge line. And in fact, the major highway in Israel today goes right up this route, past Bethel, Shiloh, all the way up to Shechem, and for, further, uh, further north. But just, just to familiarize yourself a little bit with what is going on here, and that's the background. This is where Saul has been led by the Lord, working behind the scenes, not overtly, God did not say, Saul, you need to go to Ramah and meet Samuel. But God worked providentially in the background through various circumstances. Uh, the uh, the she-asses that were owned by uh, Saul's father were uh, wandered off, so Saul was sent on a mission to find them, and he he couldn't find them no matter what he was doing. And God was using that to bring him into Ramah. And in the previous lesson in chapter 9, we saw how God, through his servant, uh, Saul was ready to go home, but through his servant who knew that Samuel lived in the area, suggested that they seek him out as a man of God that might be able to give them some guidance and the fact that Saul is ignorant of Samuel, ignorant of Samuel's presence in Ramah, when Samuel's the most significant leader in Israel at the time, is the first foreshadowing of the fact that Saul is spiritually uninterested and he is spiritually ignorant and dense. And that's going to play out in a couple of different ways as we go through the, the, the passage. Now, in terms of the structure, what we've looked at at the beginning is that the Lord is selecting and anointing Saul to be king over Israel. This is the first part of this subdivision between verse chapter 9, rather, and chapter 15. So in this first subsection, uh, the Lord is selecting, identifying for Samuel who the, the one will be, who will be the next, who will be the first uh, divinely uh, appointed ruler of Israel. So first, last time we looked at verses 1 through 27. And now this time in verses 1 through 16, we'll see how the Lord directs Samuel to anoint Saul and then confirms that appointment through the changes to Saul and how Saul will uh, fall in with this group of prophets. And this is really an odd, odd situation and a lot of things are 
are, you know, sort of come out as we study this and think about what happens here. I want to pick up with the last verse of verse uh, of chapter nine. Uh, if you recall, as we finished up the chapter, uh, they had spent the night. They rose up early, verse twenty-six in Ramah, and at the dawning of the day, Samuel went to call Saul, and he is sleeping on the top of the house. This would have been the coolest place to sleep. Often in the uh, warm periods of the year, heat rises, so the upper room in a house would be a warm place to sleep. The upper room was usually a guest room, and often in the summer, uh, they would sleep up on the roof. I remember when I was a little boy, my grandmother had a lake house up on a lake just outside of, uh, of Gonzales, Texas, and back in those days, this house was probably built back in the 30s, they had a very large screened-in porch, and there were about uh, probably six or seven chase lounges that would fold down to a bed that were out on the porch. And in the late, from the late spring to uh, early fall, when we would go out there, we would end up sleeping out there, and there were uh, ceiling fans, and that's how you kept cool at night. And I remember uh, back before air conditioning, often when it was really sticky and warm at night, that um, my mother would uh, soak a sheet in water, then wring it out so it would just slightly damp, and then you'd go to sleep under that. The evaporation's a cooling process, and so that would cool you off at night. And that's how uh, old-timers, before all this modern technology, would uh, would survive the um, the warm humid summers in uh, Gulf Coast, Texas. So they were sleeping up on the, uh, Saul was sleeping up on the roof, and Samuel calls him to come down and uh, wake up, and they left. And as they're going, we pick up in verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. So that's going to leave Samuel and Saul alone. And the servant goes on ahead, and he says, but uh, Samuel says to Saul, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. And in the first verse then, we read, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? couple of things we need to observe here. When Samuel, after the servant goes on ahead, Samuel says to Saul that he has something to tell him. He says, you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of the God, the word of God. And this is the Hebrew word Shema. Shema is the basic verb in the cow stem, which is the basic stem of any verb, means to hear or to listen. But in the hyphil stem, this is a causative stem, and it means to cause to hear or cause to listen. So what basically what Samuel is saying, I want to cause you to listen to this. So I want to give you a message. And this is an important word here because... As we get down into the core of this section, and we're talking about Samuel and, uh, excuse me, Saul, and he comes, uh, runs into these, these prophets, and they're singing, and it says that Saul prophesies among the prophets, and our frame of reference when we read this is that prophecy is announcing the word of God. Uh, uh, we think from our background that prophecy is uh, an individual who's been gifted by God who is going to speak as God's spokesperson to the people. Now, if you come to the Word of God from some backgrounds, and many of the, many uh, who are from uh, a liberal background who don't necessarily have a trust in the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word, and many who have been influenced by subjective mysticism miss this because they're immediately reading something into the text that isn't there, but we'll get there in a minute. But this shows us 
that the role of the prophet was not mystical. It's not ecstatic. Ecstasy has nothing whatsoever to do with how God reveals himself in any dispensation to his people. I heard one pastor one time make the comment that ecstasy would be normative in the millennial kingdom. Ecstasy isn't normative in any time because ecstasy is the modus operandi of paganism. It is subjectivism and mysticism, and it never characterized a biblical prophet. A biblical prophet is communicating information revealed to them by God to the audience God intends for them to give. And it doesn't change its meaning when you get into the millennial kingdom. I hate it when that happens. Computer downloads an update. I've been back from Kiev five days. On the way back, I changed the time zone on my laptop to Houston. But at 3 o'clock every afternoon... I get this message that it's time to shut down your computer because I have it set to shut down at 10 p.m., to automatically shut down 10 p.m. and come on at 7 a.m. And I get this message at 3 in the afternoon. I have no idea why. That everything I've, every setting is set to central time zone. There is a spirit working. If we anointed the computer with oil, though, it would probably just short it out. Anyhow... We get this, this mentality that, that somehow there's something that's, you, you almost want to play the, the theme of the twilight zone. That there's something weird going on and it's mystical. But that's, if you start with the text of scripture, you won't find that. When in, in, in the life of Samuel in seven, eight chapters that we've gone through in Samuel's life, have we ever gotten a sense that that Solomon I mean that Samuel functioning as a prophet is going into some kind of a trance state, an ecstatic state, uh that he's going into some kind of mystical, uh irrational state uh from God. God objectively uh, spoke to Samuel, remember when he's a little boy and he's in the temple, God speaks to him and he talks back to God in a rational, logical conversation. This isn't some sort of trance-like mysticism that you see, for example, among the Plains Indians at the time of, uh, of the American West in the 19th century. Uh, I, I love reading, there was a great book that came out a couple of years ago, uh, name escapes me right now. Somebody will remind me in a minute. That dealt with the Comanches, um, Empire of the Summer Moon. Great book, tremendous book, and it was all about the Comanches on the, the and and the wars against the settlers in Texas, and specifically focused on their great war chief Quanah Parker. And it so happened that the very first person that I worked for after I got out of college, when I was teaching in Channel View. I was running an in-school suspension class, and uh, uh, it was under the authority of the counseling department. And I had this short, round, red-headed uh, Irishman named Gene O'Quinn, who was my boss. Except Gene, Gene took after his father. His mother was the youngest daughter of Quanah Parker. And he was an interesting guy, and he had all these pictures of uh, of his grandfather in, in, in the office. And he said, you know, all these pictures were taken the same day. All the war chiefs, all the chiefs in the tribe had been sitting around in the peyote tent chewing on the peyote button. And the chief, which was Quanah, would be the first one to get it, and he could chew it and chew it and and he would get the most of the hallucinogenic drug, and then he would give it to the next guy, and it would go all the way down the totem pole to the lowest guy uh, in the hierarchy. And it, he says, if you look closely at those pictures, you'll see that he's just as spaced out and as high as he could be. And you can, you can see that glazed look in his eye. That's mysticism. That's going into an altered state of consciousness in order to somehow get in touch 
with the divine, get in touch with God or whatever it is you, you want to call it. And, and that's, that's what they did. But that's paganism. That's not biblical, that's not what biblical prophets did. And so this shows us as an example of what I'll say when we get down to that section of the passage. This shows us how Samuel's methodology. He's, he's not dancing. He's not taking drugs. He's not getting high. He's not getting into an altered state of consciousness. He's not trying to get Saul to come along with that. He says, let me cause you to hear. Let me announce to you. Let me communicate to you the message of God. It's rational. It is thought out. It is everyday uh, communication. And so he explains to Samuel that God has chosen him to be the king of Israel. And then Samuel takes a flask of oil, olive oil, pours it on his head and kisses him, showing great respect and grace orientation to God's choice and says, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance. And the word that is translated anointed is the is the Hebrew word mashach, which is converted into a noun as the word mashiach, which is where we get the anglicized form messiah, that that means simply someone who is anointed or appointed to a task. It doesn't mean necessarily that the person is a believer, although I think Saul was a believer, and we'll get into that later on in this in this section. I think Paul was a believer. I mean, Saul was a believer, but it, the Mashiach doesn't necessarily indicate someone who is a believer. We've run into this word before in 1 Samuel 2.10. Interestingly enough, the... Um, the verb is only used two times prior to this. In Leviticus 7.36, Israel is anointed by God. They're appointed to a specific mission as a priest nation to all the nations. And in um, Numbers 7.1, there's furniture that is anointed, so that's non-personal. So anointing is is not too dissimilar from doing a word study on Kadosh. If, if a vessel... If a bowl, if a wooden box can be anointed, can be holy, then it, that it doesn't have a, con, a connotation in at its core uh, that relates to its relationship to God. That's why holy doesn't refer to moral purity because it's applied to a lot of inanimate objects that can't be moral or immoral. They're simply set apart to the use of God. Anointed is the same thing. It's appointed to be used by God for a specific purpose. And anointing doesn't say anything one way or the other about the spiritual status of the person that is anointed. But we see it used in with reference to to the Messiah in two places. In 1 Samuel 2.10, the last verse in Hannah's psalm, as I pointed out, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king. And that's in parallelism to the phrase, he will exalt the horn of his anointed, where uh, through divine inspiration uh, and through her own meditation on Scripture, Hannah has connected the dots between the birth of Samuel and the ultimate arrival of God's Messiah King. In 1 Samuel 2.35, at the end of that chapter, when an unnamed prophet uh, came to Eli, this unnamed prophet announces God's, um, God's will, God's statement, that I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, that would be Samuel, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed Always. Again, this is a reference to the Messiah King. These, these subtle allusions in 1 Samuel 2. Now, a verse where this word Mashiach is used and applied to a non-Jew in the Old Testament is Cyrus. And I've heard some people say, well, because he's stated as God's anointed that Cyrus must have been saved. Well, you can't, he may, might have been saved, but not on the basis of this verse. 
being a being anointed or appointed to a divine task doesn't mean you were saved or unsaved. It just means God chose Cyrus for a specific mission, and that was to uh, send the Jews back to the land to authorize their return to the land. And so this was a prophecy given in Isaiah 45, 1, some 100-plus years, almost 200 years, before Cyrus was present on the earth. Now, Samuel, after anointing Saul, which shows that he is appointed to a specific task, and that is to rule rule Israel, Samuel then gives him specific instructions. Now, why does he give these instructions? He gives these instructions because the the anointing is a very private ceremony. Remember, he told the servant to go on ahead. It's just Saul and Samuel. And a principle that I've been trying to drill into y'all all the way through this because it, it shows the errors of mysticism is that God does not speak in private without giving a an objective public validation of what he does in private. This happened with Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, that this is a private experience where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to Saul of Tarsus, and Saul becomes a believer. But it's confirmed because God says, you go into Damascus, and you're going to meet a guy named Ananias, and he is going to restore your sight. So there's objective validation and verification of something that otherwise could have been simply a subjective psychological experience. And trust me, the critics of Christianity come along all the time and say that that's all it was, was that Paul had a subjective uh, psychological experience due to his guilt complex from having murdered so many Christians. Uh, but that denies the rest of the evidence in the text. So what happens... Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, is God is going to, or God through Samuel gives him instruction so that there will be objective evidence validating the private act of anointing, showing that to the nation that Saul is indeed God's choice uh, to rule the nation. So he says, when you've departed from me today, you'll find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. This was just down the road from Ramah. And these two men will say to you, now I want you to notice something here. When we talk about biblical prophecy, this isn't about the kind of prophecy you go to when you see the, the, the house where it says, you know, spiritual reader, spiritual advisor, tarot card reader, palm reader, and you go in and you get these, somebody who's very intuitive and makes several guesses and reads your body language and makes certain guesses and make you think that they've really figured out what's going on in your life. And, and the gullible and the easily duped uh, just are convinced that this person is able to uh, tell their tell their future, but those situations are always couched in very general type terms. Unlike biblical prophecy, which is very precise. In fact, there are like the passage we saw just a minute ago in Isaiah forty five one, almost two hundred years prior to the arrival of Cyrus on the historical scene, he is identified by name by Isaiah the prophet. We have the same kind of thing happening in um, in, in in First Kings, where Abijah, uh, not, excuse me, it's not Abijah, where this unnamed prophet comes up to um, Jeroboam and says that as Jeroboam is sacrificing to a false god, as he's setting up these these false altars at Bethel and at Dan, and uh, this unnamed prophet says that a king named Josiah will come, and he will destroy this altar. And that's, again, it's not for another 200-plus years. And Josiah comes. So there's a specificity in biblical prophecy that goes beyond uh, people like Nostradamus and all these other quacks that people go to and say, well, see, there's other people who make prophecy, not like the Bible. And so Samuel says there are going to be two men, not three men, not one man, not a man and a woman, two men by Rachel's tomb. 
So that's how you can identify them. And they will tell you that the donkeys are okay. Those she-asses are just fine, and you don't need to worry about them anymore. Your father's not worried about them anymore. They've been taken back, and everything's fine, so that you can go on about God's mission without worrying about about your other task. Verse 3, he says, Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tavor. Now, he's really... Let me see if I can go back to our map real quickly. Tavor is up here north, just north of Jezreel. Mount Tavor will be just at the edge of this particular map. So if that's where he's going, to Mount Tavor, now there's some discussion that maybe there's another village named Tavor down here. By the way, that's the name of the assault rifle that the uh, Israeli army uses, the Tavor. It's spelled T-A-B-O-R, but the way you pronounce it is Tavor. The B is pronounced like uh, like a V. And so he's, it's probably a village that's nearby. I don't think that he would have been going as far uh, north as, as uh, Mount Tavor. So you'll come to the Terebinth tree of Tavor. Then th- there are three men going up to God at Bethel. See, Bethel is very close, so this would be the village that's there. Uh, three men of God going uh, up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, not two. Not one, not an old one, not a, not a you, three young goats. Uh, another carrying three loaves of bread, not two, not three, not four. And another carrying a skin of wine, not two. See the specificity. This, this relates to doctrines of bibliology, inerrancy, infallibility, the specificity of prophet. Because if Samuel was wrong in any detail, it's the death penalty. He doesn't get a chance to say, oops, I just kind of misread the leaves. One got, got under the cup a little too far, and it, I, th- I said three, and it should have been four. It's, he's right on the target because, according to Deuteronomy uh, 13 and 18, if he's wrong, it's a death penalty. Now, Samuel goes on to say, they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. So they'll keep one for themselves, give you two. And after that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. So you have a small uh, orchestra, a small ensemble that has been up at this high place and that they have been worshiping God. But see, what happens is we've got a view of prophecy that fits what Samuel said to, to Saul back in verse 27 and, and verse 1 that doesn't fit this. What does it mean that Saul is going to be prophesying with them and then later it will become proverbial that Saul is going to be numbered among the prophets. In verse 6 we read, so we skip, skip ahead, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. I want you to notice it's not in you. The prepositions here in the Hebrew are very important. The, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you. This is from an external viewpoint. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And, and, and let it be when the, these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. Now, if you look at this from the vantage point of your background, and the vantage point of you, of our culture, then it looks like this is some kind of subjective ecstatic experience, that this fits a pattern that we would see that is similar but different, that we among pagan prophets and priests. In fact, this is basically the contention of a number of liberals, liberal theologians, that interpret this, and this liberal scholarship has influenced a number of of, um, of evangelicals. 
And I've never really heard anybody else teach on this. And I was fortunate enough to have had a professor in seminary recommend an article in class one time that caught my attention by Leon Wood. Leon Wood was a very well-known Baptist uh, Bible teacher. I think he taught at at Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, wrote a commentary on Judges, wrote a commentary on Daniel. I think he died in the 70s. But he, he was a, a very good thinker in terms of Old Testament studies. And he wrote an article in the uh, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society uh, called uh, Ecstasy and Israel's Early Prophets. And it wasn't a very long article, but he was so clear in his analysis of what was going on in Israel, making the case that, that the, 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 what was going on in Israel among the prophets was not to be compared with the ecstatic operations of the prophets of the pagan religions. So let's just start with a couple of definitions so we understand what ecstasy is. First of all, I'm going to give you Leon Wood's definition where he says, um, starts off, he's talking about the different ways in which uh, these prophets are, are described and analyzed. As one is by ecstatic frenzy. In ecstatic frenzy, the subject seeks to withdraw his mind from conscious participation in the world so that it may be open to the reception of the divine word. In other words, the individual is trying to clear out his mind. This is like in Eastern, Eastern uh, mysticism as well. You empty your mind so that something will fill that vacuum expecting that somehow if you empty your mind that you will come in touch with a divine message. But to achieve that ecstatic state, poisonous gas may be employed. Now, there's a very famous place uh, in Greece that w- where, the, um, where, where the priestess would sit over this hole and the gases would come up and she would go into this, this altered state of consciousness. And as a result of that, she would actually speak in glossolalic, in ecstatic, ecstatic utterance. Um, and this was, this was probably, this kind of thing had entered into the uh, Greek culture by way of Asia Minor. In Asia Minor, you had the mystery religions, uh, you had, um, uh, Sibylle and Addis cult, you had the Dionysian cult, and as a result of that, this spread uh, westward into Greece, and it spread southward into what we would say now is Syria, but this was also sort of a northern Canaanite type of culture. It influenced the Phoenicians, uh, the Baal worshipped, all the fertility cults were influenced by this, and it also spread uh, somewhat, somewhat eastward. And this was uh, the idea that that um, you know poisonous gas might be employed or a rhythmic dance. This would also happen in the Dionysian religion. The Maenads that would, were involved would would dance and they would drink wine because they're worshiping the god of wine, and so they would use wine to get into this altered state of consciousness. That's why you have to understand that background to catch what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5.18. When he says, don't be drunk with wine, he's not saying don't be influenced. He's not talking about being drunk. That's how most people with no understanding of the background interpret that, which is understandable. But see, alcohol, wine, was being used in the worship of Dionysius in Ephesus as well as over in, in Greece as a way of getting into this uh, ecstatic trance so that the God could enter into your body and could speak through you in ecstatic gibberish. And that was thought of to be the voice of God. As you can understand, this is a, a background for understanding the confusion that occurred in Corinth over over speaking in tongues. So it was through dancing, it was through narcotics, and the uh, individual would um, would uh, lose all rational contact with the world and have this uh, 
so-called rapport with the spirit realm. So now we go, I'm going to take you from Leon Wood's definition to give you another definition, which is very similar to that, which is found in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. In the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, we read this definition. The ecstatic prophet achieves a trance-like state by self-induced means. The most common devices used to achieve a state of ecstasy were musical instruments, such as the harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre. And then they cite this passage. See, what they've done is they've gone to this view that this they've assumed that what's happening in the Bible is the same thing that was happening in these other cultures. And then they go on to say, among the prophets of Baal, self-flagellation was another means of inducing ecstasy. Now let me read what they say next. I didn't want to put all of this up there on the screen. The kind of prophetic ecstasy was usually practiced by groups of prophets, 1 Samuel 10.5. And such ecstasy was contagious. See, that's how they're going to explain what happens to Paul, to, to Saul. It's contagious. And when Saul met a band of such prophets, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he too began to prophesy a phenomenon which occurred repeatedly to various messengers sent by Saul on a later occasion, 1 Samuel 19, 20-22. Then Saul also prophesied in his ecstatic behavior, described in 1 Samuel 19, 24, uh, is is then described, and they, they go on. Now, now, what's going on here? What we see is is you have to ask the chicken and the egg question. If you believe the Bible, what came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. You ask another question: What came first, biblically revealed religion, or these world religions of the ancient world? Which came first? The biblical truth came first. Even if the Bible isn't written until 1400 B.C., what Moses is writing down in 1400 B.C. isn't something that evolved from uh, polytheism through uh, from animism and spiritism to polytheism and eventually to monotheism. Now all of a sudden Moses has this great new insight. That's what I was taught in Western civilization uh, many years ago in college, and that's what's still taught. That is the world's view of the evolution of world religions. It doesn't believe that the Bible is an objective historical revelation of God who created the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them to man. It is man's recording of his religious experiences. That's, that's liberalism. And this dominates liberal scholarship. Their starting point is an anti-supernatural bias. And so for them, when they look at history, they see that in the uh, area of modern Turkey or Asia Minor in the period from 2000 to 1000 B.C., that this kind of mystical trance-like behavior developed, and it influenced the Greeks, influenced the Canaanites and Phoenicians and Syrians to the south, and it enters into Israel's history at that point so that Israel develops these prophets that are that really are following the M.O., the modus operandi of the pagans. And so they're seeing that there's no difference. See, the, 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 the Jewish prophets aren't any different from the other prophets. They just have a higher moral standard as a result of the Mosaic law. And so we always have to question um, this kind of thing. And this is their basic, uh, this is their basic viewpoint. And uh, Leon Wood has a quote here from uh, an article called Prophecy in a book called Record and Revelation by an Old Testament scholar of a previous generation. This book was published in 1938. And this is how they describe what's going on in 1 Samuel 10. These persons are pictured as moving through the land in rather wild bands, chanting in loud voices, and making ecstatic inquiry for people upon request. The people are thought to have accepted them as holy because they did conduct themselves in this manner, considering their ability to achieve the ecstatic state as a badge of their authority. This is just charismania 
transported back into the ancient world. And it often went along with the fertility religions. Now, fertility religions was just the older, antiquated form of prosperity theology. It's like, how do you want to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous in an agricultural environment? Well, you've got to go somehow placate the gods of fertility, which means you go emulate sexual acts in the temples of Baal and the Asherah in order to try to get them to get the point of making uh, the crops fertile. Very primitive, uh, very primitive idea. Now, it's easy to see how this happens when our starting point is our own experience. Then when we read something like this in the Bible, we read our experience back into what we read in the Bible. And so if you have seen something uh, like this in other religions, then you just think, well, the Bible's just doing what these other people did. No, these other people represent a, a, a degenerate form of what was originally practiced in, in relationship uh, to God. Another example of this that uh, you'll see is the example of Second Samuel 6.14, talking about David dancing before the Lord. In Second Samuel 6.14, we read, Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. And then two verses later we read, Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, uh, Michal, Saul's daughter, looking through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, if you grew up in a post-Elvis Presley rock and roll world, which I think applies to everybody in this audience, then when you read this, your frame of reference is what you did at a sock hop or what you did at a dance or what you did just standing up at a rock concert in the 80s or the 90s, and you're just doing your own dancing and gyrating to the music without any regard to what anybody else is doing. You're just doing your own thing, purely a self-oriented form of dancing. There's no structure. There's no... Uh, guidelines, there's no organization. That's our frame of reference. Now, if you saw the film with Richard Gere of King David, an image I wish I could get out of my head, <laughs> when he is interpreting this and he's dancing before the Lord, his, his ephod is more like a big diaper, and he's out dancing and tumbling and gyrating and all of this as his interpretation of this. But look at the verbs that are used. Dancing before the Lord with all your strength or with all your energy. And then the other two verbs are, are whirling and leaping. Now, whirling and leaping does not necessarily interpret to mean some sort of subjective free-form praise dancing. Okay, you would use those same words to describe Barishnikov or Nuryev. You would use those same terms if you recently uh, um, uh, have been to the ballet. You could use those terms to describe any of the dance that is going on. And it's very structured and very disciplined and has an order to it. And in fact, even uh, a lot of contemporary dance. Uh, is also that way. It is very structured and organized and orderly. It is not just whimsical and random. And but but people will read this into the text, and this is a problem. We can't read our experiences into the text. This isn't how these cultures uh, these cultures function. So what we have to do is look at the biblical evidence. Of prophets. How did prophets function? Do we have an image of irrational, ecstatic, trance-like conduct in the prophets that are mentioned in the scripture? So let's just run through uh, some of the evidence. Well, the first thing that we ought to look at in terms of the evidence that would contradict this liberal view of ecstasy is just the evidence of Moses himself. 
Remember, Moses is the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, he is the one who said, there will be a prophet like me who will come. And that is a messianic announcement of the future prophet. He is the preeminent standard of a prophet. He calls himself a prophet. In the Hebrew, this is a, a navi, is the Hebrew word. And that... Uh, and he uses that to describe himself and to describe uh, the supreme, preeminent prophet of the Messiah who will come in the future. But when we look at the evidence of Moses in Moses' life, Moses is not ecstatic. When did Moses ever go into a trance-like state? When does Moses go, go uh, smoking dope and chewing the peyote button and uh, sniffing poisonous gas like the Oracle of Delphi. Who is it that's, uh, uh, when does he do this kind of thing to bring on this altered state of consciousness? He does, not only does he not do it at all, but if you look at Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 through 14, he specifically warns the people against following the practices of the idolatrous nations around them including all of their uh, sacrifices and the way they approach their gods. So he is, Moses is contrasting the way God spoke to him and God's relationship to him and this unique relationship where God spoke to him face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, as it's stated literally, is totally contrasted. It's 180 degrees different from the methodologies of paganism. Now, let me remind you of a couple of really basic, obvious rules that seem to escape a lot of people. Someone once said that there's one thing about common sense is is that it's not common. And a lot of the reading of the text needs to be just common sense, but it's very uncommon because people are always trying to find something hidden uh, hidden in in the text. And and that is that, that, that Moses speaks directly from God, and he speaks in sentences. He doesn't speak in gibberish. He makes it very clear uh, what he is, what he is speaking about, and he makes this contrast, 180-degree contrast, between what he is doing and what the pagans do. And what we have in modern liberalism is that they want to blend the two. All religion is the same. And what happens if you have a presupposition that all religion is the same and we all worship the same God, you know what happens? You know what the end result of that is? It's going on right now in Europe. You have roving bands of North African and Middle Eastern young men who are raping women left and right because in their view... Uh, to worship Allah means that these Christian women are just there for their own personal pleasure. And yet neither the news media nor the politicians have the courage to tell us what's going on because it violates their deeply held presupposition that all religions are the same and Allah and God and whoever you worship, uh, they're all the same. So there's no difference. It is a religious ignorance that is going to self-destruct on Western civilization. There is a radical difference in the Bible, in the Torah, between how God communicates through the Nevi'im, the prophets, and how the gods of the pagans uh, work with their, with their uh, prophets. Who's the first person who's identified as a prophet in the Bible? The first person identified is identified by God as a prophet takes place in Genesis chapter 20. In Genesis chapter 20, we have a situation where Abraham has once again not been totally honest about his relationship with his half-sister, Sarah, who he's also married to. And when he comes into the Philistine city of Gerar, the Philistine leader's name is Abimelech. That was probably his title. And, uh, and, Abraham doesn't want to, doesn't want to cause a problem because his wife is so beautiful. So he just tells Abimelech that this is my sister. Well, Abimelech thinks, well, this is his sister. That's fine. I'll just make her part of my harem. So he's going to bring her into his harem, but God is going to protect her womb 
because the seed, the promised seed, is going to come through Sarah. And so God comes to Abimelech that night in a dream and basically threatens his life that if you touch her, you're going to die. But in the process, he says, now, therefore, restore the man's wife, talking about Abraham, for he is a prophet. That is, he is a recipient of divine revelation who will then pass it on to others. Now, where do we see Abraham using mind-altering drugs, hallucinogenic drugs? Where do we see him dancing around before the Lord, trying to get into some sort of hallucinogenic state? What we see is God in his initiating grace, which I talked about Sunday morning, that we respond to God only because God initiates to us. We don't find God, God finds us. This is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are not looking for God. When God shows up, what did they do? Did they run to him, throw their arms around him, say, oh, we really messed up? No, they ran and hid in fear. God is the one who's seeking them out. Okay? And so we don't see that in Abraham. Abraham is the recipient of God's initiation to seek out Abraham. Now, Abraham has already believed in God, and God is seeking him out to take him to another uh, level in terms of God's plan for Abraham, which wasn't related to his salvation. So that's what happens with Abraham. Is You don't see that ecstatic evidence there. Then the next time we see the word mentioned is in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now, this is interesting because God is speaking here, and Moses has said, Lord, don't send me to talk to Pharaoh. He's kind of whiny, and he's, he probably, to play up the stuttering part, he's probably saying something like, like, Lord, I stutter. And the Lord says, we'll give you a spokesperson. He's going to be your brother Aaron. But you will be to Pharaoh like God, and Aaron will be to um, Pharaoh like your prophet. So he gives us a really clear understanding here of the relationship between the prophet and the Pharaoh. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. Next verse tells us what a prophet does. You shall speak all that I command to you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. How does prophecy work? It's just communication. I'm going to tell you what you're supposed to say. You will communicate it to Aaron, and he communicates it to Pharaoh. It's basic communication. There's nothing there that that indicates some sort of trance-like state, getting into an altered state of consciousness or anything else like that. Now, the next example is kind of an interesting one because it throws your whole paradigm and the normal Christian paradigm of a prophet completely screwy. And this is in Exodus 15, 20, and 21. Miriam, Aaron's and Moses' sister, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. Now, this sounds more like 1 Samuel 10 than the other examples. There's music involved. There's dancing involved. And Miriam answered them and said, Sing to the Lord. So there's singing involved. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. So this example of Miriam prophesying doesn't fit the other examples. But is this ecstatic, or is it something else? Let's keep looking. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 is one of the three passages that the ecstatic, uh, the pro-ecstatic crowd goes to to support their position. Numbers 11, 1 Samuel 10, 1 Samuel 19. And so, because certainly Deuteronomy 18 doesn't fit their scenario, neither do the other the other passages. So this is a a uh, simple situation related to the 70 elders that uh, Moses identifies that God uh, uh, gives him uh, guidance in order to appoint them so that they will uh, help to lead the nation. And we're told in verse 25, the Lord came down in the cloud, spoke to him, and took of the spirit that was upon him, that is the spirit that's upon Moses, and placed the same upon the 70 elders. So the, the spirit of God is now going to be working through the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. 
So it's evidence what they do, whatever that was, we'll figure it out in a little bit, has to do with authenticating their new position of authority and leadership and the, and the fact that it is the result of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, there were two men of these 70 that didn't make roll call. When it came time to form up, they were still sleeping in, and so they're back in the camp. Two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. Whatever that is, they're doing it back in the camp, and they kept doing it. A young man ran and told Moses and said, wait a minute, Eldad and Medad didn't show up, but they're back in the camp and they're prophesying. And this guy thinks it's a problem because he says, this could lead to a, 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 a problem with your authority and insurrection. Now, this didn't, but insurrection's coming in the next couple of chapters in Numbers. So this young man is Joshua, the son of Nun. You know the story. Joshua is the only person in the Bible other than Adam who didn't, and Eve who didn't have any parents. He's the son of Nun. Just want to make sure you're still alert, hanging in there with me. Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. But Moses said, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So this isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. But what's this thing about prophecy? Now, in Judges chapter 4, we have Deborah, a prophetess, like Miriam, a prophetess. But what in the world does Deborah do other than uh, other than go along with uh, General Barak to defeat uh, Sisera and the Canaanites? What does she do? Genesis, Judges chapter 5, verse 1. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Obinoam, sang on that day. See, this is like what goes on in, back in uh, Exodus 7 with Miriam, singing to the Lord. Uh, not Exodus 7, Exodus 15. So the next one to look at is Samuel. Now, this is what uh, Leon Wood says in his article. Samuel is repeatedly portrayed, never shows ecstatic traits. Indeed, scholars who hold to the ecstatic idea for other prophets readily assert that Samuel was of another type. This is how they f- explain it. They say that he was a seer. This was a term ro'ev from the Hebrew verb ra'ah, meaning to see. But we saw earlier that seers were called that before later on they were called prophets. That's what the text explains. So he says seers, in contrast to prophets, according to the pro-ecstatic crowd, are said to have been quiet persons waiting for inquirers to come to them. But moving through history further, we find the same non-ecstatic manner of prophecy with Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, 2 and 12, 25, Gad in 2 Samuel 24, 11, Ahijah in 1 Kings 11, 29 and 14 through to 18, and others. Though not much is stated regarding any of them, never are they depicted in a way to suggest any kind of irrational, ecstatic behavior to the prophetic activities. They're not mystical. Mysticism and ecstasy, ecstatics go hand in hand. So what is going on here? There appear to be two different concepts or meanings going on in prophecy, and so we'll close with this verse. First Chronicles 25, 1 through 3. One of those passages, and very few people read through Chronicles for their devotions. They get started, and the first nine chapters are just list, name lists. And they get bored, and they go read something more exciting like Zechariah or Haggai. Okay, First Chronicles 25, 1. Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph. So these are priests who are going to serve when, in, in the temple, in the tabernacle worship, and later in the temple. You have the sons of... It's, it's just called basic organization. We're going to divide everybody up into groups, and people are going to serve at different times in the temple. There's going to be a structure. Everything is done orderly because God is a God of order. And he separates the sons of Asaph, of Heman, and Jedithan, who should, what are they going to do? They're going to prophesy with harp, stringed instruments, and cymbals. Now, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel didn't do that. What's going on here? They prophesy with musical instruments. 
through an orchestra. This isn't some sort of ecstatic rambling. Somebody's playing, uh, just going out there and doing a little impromptu musical reflection. They had a very well-structured orchestra, and they're just listing some of the various instruments in the orchestra. They were skilled men performing their service. And then we read in verse 2 of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, Joseph, Nethaniah, Asherelah, the sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied according to the order of the king. This is not extemporaneous. This is planned according to the order of the king of Jedithan. The sons of Jedithan, and then lists all of them, six under the direction of their father Jedithan, who prophesied with a harp. Now this is where we get the meaning of the word prophecy. To give thanks and to praise to the Lord. See, prophecy isn't limited to communicating God's objective word of condemnation or judgment to Israel, but it is also related to giving thanks and praise to God. So now when we look at 1 Samuel 10, we can read it with understanding. There's a group of prophets coming down from the high place. They have their musical instruments with them, and they were prophesying, i.e., they were giving thanks and praise to God. They were singing hymns to God, the Psalms to God. And then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, Samuel said to to Saul in verse 6, and you will prophesy with him. You will start singing the Psalms with them. You will be a part of their worship to the Lord. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands that God is with you. And then it it goes on from there. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel 19. It's not some sort of mystical trance where suddenly they just start speaking in tongues or some kind of ecstatic revelation. They are expressing thanks to God and worshiping him on the basis of the revealed truth that they have. That is what it means to prophesy. And that's what's going on with Miriam. Miriam the prophetess isn't a prophet in the sense of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Amos, and all of the others. She is composing hymns of praise to God. That's what Deborah did, composing hymns to God that had deep, rich content and excellent music. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things this evening and to help us to understand what your word says that if we interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, we understand the uniqueness of of your word and that this is not like any other religion because you are not a God like any other God. You are the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and you are the God who planned a perfect plan of salvation that would uh, provide for the payment of the penalty of sin that we might have eternal life simply by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, not by works, not by working ourselves up into some kind of revelatory situation, not by sniffing gas like the uh, Oracle of Delphi, but by just reading and understanding your word through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, enlightening our souls to the truth and responding in faith alone. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.